Make sure you're not made emperor. Avoid that imperial stain. Because it can happen before you know it. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Tossin behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Cameron Joss. Cameron is an athletic performance coach at Indiana Football and was most recently the head of sports performance at DeFranco's Gym. He's also the author of the book, The Process. I follow Cameron through articles, social media posts, and his thoughts and challenges to many of the traditional ways of thinking have greatly helped me throughout the years of formulating my own thoughts on the field. And this is a podcast I was looking forward to having for a long time, and we're finally able to get him on. So I'm pretty pumped about this one. Today, we talked about the difference between complex and complicated systems and which one an athlete falls into, the importance of foundations and reserves for athletes, and the ability to look inward to help others. This, again, was an awesome podcast, hearing a really successful coach talk about some of the failures and how he went about growing and attacking them. And I think that I think that's powerful to see even the person that that is at that top of the mountain, even the person that everybody views as super successful is going through these struggles. And it's not just it's not just a low man on a totem pole. It's everybody. And it's just the ability to grow and move forward from these struggles is what separates that person from the low and the bottom to the person like Cameron, who's on top and crushing a coaching world. So that's what I took away from this podcast, at least. And I really hope you guys are able to get some nuggets from this. Thank you guys for listening. All right, well, Coach, it's awesome to have you on the podcast. I'm excited for you to be here. Hey, thanks so much, Austin, for having me. I'm, I'm glad we finally, I know we were trying to get this done for a while, so I'm glad that we were finally able to make it happen. Yeah, you uh, you've been recommended multiple times, and the Corona threw a little uh, little twist into our plans a couple times, but now we're back on it. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about your background, kind of how you got into the world of sports performance, how you got to where you're at now, and kind of the journey of that path? Yeah, so most of my career was spent in the private sector, but where it really all started for me was I I, I first came across. DeFranco's gym, which is where I had my first job. And I spent most of my career there. Uh, first came across DeFranco's gym when I was in high school and I was trying to get bigger, stronger, faster, like every other high school football player. And Joe DeFranco trained me in high school. And the effects that I felt from training with him were just amazing. You know, I mean, he, he helped me completely transform my body and really, I've, I firmly believe allowed me to have the opportunity to play college football. And, you know, I was a walk-on a uh, long shot type of guy. And I was still able to get on the field in college. And I, I think that a lot of it had to do with the physical transformation I was able to make, you know, working with Joe DeFranco. And so because of that, I decided when I went to college, I wanted to study kinesiology and exercise science. And I wanted to get into what he was doing. And he was a big name in the industry at the time. And I felt fortunate that I had that connection with him. And I was just trying to learn all I could from him. So in college, I would come back and intern with him after our training session. I would just basically spend the day there at DeFranco's and watch him train, you know, all these NFL athletes and college athletes and high school athletes and just male, female athletes, multiple sports, and just picking his brain on how he did all of that. And it just got me more and more interested. And so I just right away in college, I got into reading as much as I could about training. I just, I was fascinated by the whole thing. So just this idea of sports performance and how you can really help change somebody's career in sport by exposing them to, you know, a bit just more efficient ways of preparing their bodies, I guess. And so 
Uh, I ended up doing an internship in college at University of South Carolina. The strength coach there at the time was Joe Connolly. He's currently at Arizona State. He's an awesome guy. And I spent about, I want to say five or six months there at South Carolina. So that was my first just experience with the college level, especially at the power five level and just seeing what that was all about. And admittedly, I was overwhelmed by it. I was just, it was, it was a lot to take in, you know, cause I, I had seen what the private sector looked like. And then when I went to do that as, you know, a 21 year old kid, I was, or I was just, I was blown away by just the, the, the sheer magnitude of how many players you have to, you have to work with the coaching uh, interaction in terms of how you're dealing with the sport coaches, all of that. It was just, wow. Like I was really intrigued by it at the time, but it certainly was overwhelming for me as, as a, as a younger kid. And uh, I ended up having a call with Joe DeFranco trying to figure out if I wanted to go the college route and work my way up as a GA and, you know, uh, then become a, an assistant strength coach and work my way up that way in college realm, or if I wanted to try to do something in the private sector and Joe had a position that was open in the private sector. So I decided to hop on that because I knew what he was all about. I felt comfortable with his environment and his atmosphere. And that ended up turning into a seven year work relationship with him. So I started out as a, as a, just an assistant, low, low totem pole member, assistant performance coach at DeFranco's gym. And uh, then Joe decided he wanted to do an experiment and move the gym down to Austin, Texas for two years and move the brand down there and see if we could do something with that. And he gave me the opportunity to go down there and basically be the director of that facility. And um, I was shocked. He offered it to me and I totally was not ready for it. And <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm thinking back on it in reality, and uh, I, it was two years of making mistakes, really, to be honest. Like it was two years of just learning uh, what kind of coach I was going to be, what kind of manager I was going to be. And I made a lot of mistakes programming wise, uh, just dealing with people and trying to manage people. I tried to have interns there. I, I didn't do a good job with the interns. If I'm being honest, I, I just, I wasn't ready for it. I was, I was, I think 23 or 24 when I went down there and it was just, it was too much for me to, for me to chew at the time. And I, I don't think I did a good enough job really trying to hone myself in to prepare myself for that. But ultimately we ended up moving back to East Rutherford, New Jersey, um, and brought the brand back there. Cause in, in Texas, it's really hard to tap in from a private sector standpoint because every single high school has their own strength coach down there. You know, like these kids don't really need a place to train. They're, they're doing football workouts in in what should have been gym class. You know, it's just a totally different animal down there. So we moved everything back up to New Jersey because it wasn't really happening for us down there. And uh, I, I came back up here and that's where we scaled everything down significantly. And I, I was there in East Rutherford from 2016 to, to 2020. And uh, that's where I basically was able to really hone my skills appropriately for coaching, I believe, and managing and understanding um, what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be in this industry. After making all the mistakes I had made thus far, I was really able to then start capitalizing on those and learn from those. And uh, so from there, I actually went and uh, I decided I wanted to work in the college setting again because I wanted to take what I was learning in the private sector and just through conversation with all these coaches that were at the professional level or the collegiate level, I wanted to take what I was learning in this smaller setting and apply it to a bigger setting. So from there, I accepted a job in January at University of North Carolina in Charlotte with uh, strength coach Chris Laskowski. And Chris Laskowski is bar none one of the best on the floor strength coaches I've ever seen. Like just 
the way he commanded these players and, and the, the way he got them to perform in terms of their technique in the weight room and his, his diligence and his attention to technique. I was just, I was so impressed by it. And, uh, I, I had accepted a role with him and didn't really know him too well, but I got to know him as I was, as I was down there and, uh, it was a really great experience and I, I'll always be forever grateful, um, for him taking a chance on me. I think that was something that a lot of other schools, they didn't want to do that because they saw me as a private sector guy and he's not going to fit in the team setting. And he took a chance and he gave me that experience and I'll be forever grateful for him. And I ended up making a decision, I want to say around March, where I got a call from Aaron Wallman. And Aaron Wallman was the head strength coach at the New York Giants. And he had gotten there in 2016, which is right around the time I came in to East Rutherford to work out of DeFranco's in East Rutherford. So Aaron and I got to know each other pretty well over the next three, four years. And so anytime we would meet, I mean, we were 99, if not hundred percent on the same page with everything. We had the same methodologies. We, we, we thought about things the same way. We were reading all the same stuff and we just, we really hit it off. And I never expected he would call me for, you know, offering me a job, but ultimately he ended up calling me, he told me he was leaving the giants and he was accepting this role as basically the, the head strength coach at Indiana university with the football team. And he told me he wanted me to go with him and, and be a part of the staff. And ultimately I just, I just decided for multiple reasons, you know, family decisions and things that I couldn't pass up the opportunity to, um, to work with him just from the relationship I'd already built with him and the trust that I had for him. So I made the decision to come to Indiana university and that's where I am right now in the midst of this COVID crisis. And, uh, we're going to see how it goes. Yeah, that 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 journey's that journey's pretty awesome. The, the the kind of the ups and downs, and the one thing I want to I want to like attack a little bit is people. I think people see Cameron like as one of this, and I know like I I did, and everybody that was kind of in my group, we saw you as this like young coach that is crushing it, like crushing it at every second, especially when you're in Texas, especially when you're at the Francos and you had that brand. Uh, and you mentioned like you just mentioned talking about how that was actually a failure for you, like you you felt like you were failing or you just weren't fulfilling your potential. Um, something I want to, I want to ask you about is how, how are you processing these failures and really growing from them and realizing like this, this isn't what's happening. Like everybody else is viewing you as this successful coach and this person that's growing and you, you didn't view it that way. Yeah. I would say in the moment, in the moment, I I didn't see it as clearly as I ended up seeing it in hindsight, of course. So in the moment I was convincing myself that I was, I was doing great stuff. And a lot of it was, it wasn't authentic, you know, just me being honest. I was, I was doing things and that's when I was really hitting the social media thing really hard. Um, I was trying to portray an image. I was trying to self-promote myself. I was playing that, that whole sales game of, you know, look what I'm doing, look at this awesome stuff that I'm doing. And a lot of the stuff I was posting is stuff I would do as a trial for maybe that day. Cause it looked interesting or different. And I, I wasn't even using it a month later, you know? So I ended up, basically in 2018, at one point, just my wife and I decided, let's just get rid of social media. Let's, you know, let's not, let's just get away from it all. Let's try to focus on who we are and what we want to do. And, and, uh, you know, in, in our relationship and as well as for me and my coaching, like I just, I, I wanted to stop having people tell me what I should be doing. And I just wanted to solve problems in real time. So I didn't want to go on social media and have somebody post something and, and me constantly asking myself, should I be doing that? you know, should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? Do I need to include that? And like, what's that about? I just wanted to say to myself, you know, what are the problems I'm seeing right in front of me and how can I read a book or read a paper or contact a coach and communicate on how I might be able to solve that problem? Um, 
rather than just doing mainstream trendy things. So that experience was immensely helpful for me because that allowed me to really find my authentic self. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very, just, just for me to look back in hindsight of the coach that I was then versus now, I don't want to say like, I'm this amazing coach. It's, it's not even that. It's just like, I, I just know I'm so much more authentic now as a coach than I was back then. I, I, I'm able to see things more clearly than I did when I was just, when it was about me, you know? So for me, I, I just see it as people come into this field for really one of two reasons, in my opinion. And the first reason is you really want to help young men achieve their goals. And you want to just, you want to give them all that you can and support them in any way you can. And, and it's, and it's fun to do that from a physical performance standpoint. It's just, it's an awesome way to stay around sport, right? Like that's, I think that's one reason. And I think the other reason, and this is admittedly where I had been for, for many years is you, I entered part of it with the mindset of, I didn't achieve what I wanted to achieve athletically. So I'm going to compensate by trying to be the man now, you know, like <laughs> look how great I'm doing. Look at these awesome things that I'm doing. I never got that attention as an athlete. So I'm going to just overcompensate by trying to do that now as a, as a quote unquote coach. And like, it's all about me. And I realized when I got off social media and I, and I had to self-reflect and just try to figure out who I was and what I really wanted to do in this industry. That's where I, I realized that I wasn't being authentic and I was not servicing my athletes to the capacity that I was capable. And I needed to discover what that capacity was. And that totally changed my coaching mindset at that point. I think that's that kick ass coming from you. I, I think this is awesome. Cause we talk like, I mentioned a lot, like in, in five years, if I don't look back on what I'm doing right now and think it's stupid or think I'd like, yeah, that means to me, I didn't grow enough. Hearing that come from you and a, a coach that I look up to, a coach that is on top of the mountain in making the path on top of the mountain. I don't want to say anybody's on top of the mountain, but I guess awesome for young coaches and just any coach out there to realize like every, everybody, no matter where they're at, at any point in their coaching career, realizes like that there's more room to grow. And if they're not realizing that, that means they're probably stuck in a pattern that they probably shouldn't be stuck in. That's right. I think a big part of life in general is when I was an athlete in college, I was, I was afraid to fail. So I played defensive back, right? So we had, we had one-on-ones as part of practice. We had to cover receivers for whatever, a 10 minute period. I was so afraid to fail and look stupid in that drill that I would do my best to hide behind other DBs and like not take a rep, you know? And, and I don't know how looking back on it, I thought that was going to make me better. I don't know how I assumed I was going to get a coach's attention by hiding, you know, but I was so afraid to fail. And that's just one example, but I was living my life that way. And I think that was how I was in coaching too. I just, I couldn't handle criticism. I couldn't handle any of anything that was making it seem like I wasn't doing something awesome. And, uh, I just, I lost my way a little bit with that. And so I just realized like part of it is you're going to fail. I mean, if you're in this industry for any period of time, you're going to make some really stupid mistakes. You're going to do some really dumb things. You might have some athletes like pull a hamstring or something like it's going to happen at some point when you're a young coach trying to figure it out. So it's not that you take that and think that you suck. It's just, what did I, how do I reflect on that now? How do I get myself better? So if I'd gone in and did that one-on-one in practice and I got burned off the line, well, what do I do? I go back, I look at the film. I think about the experience. I'm like, where, where were my eyes? What was I doing? What did I do wrong? How do I analyze this? And I think it's the same in coaching. You just analyze how could I have been a better coach in that situation? How could I have treated my fellow employees better, my athletes better? It's just constantly 
trying to advance yourself and progress. I don't think there's any point where you just make it and you're just the best coach ever. I mean, it's, but you always want to strive to be that guy. Right. And it's not even about being the best coach. It's about being the right coach for the players that you have and the staff that you're working with. Like, can you be the right person for them in that moment? Yeah. And that's something that, uh, you, you mentioned like detaching a little bit from what is happening in the moment, uh, realizing that if you mess up on a coaching floor, if you mess up on the field, like what that thing that happened, what that program was, what how maybe it is like when you're playing defense back and you're reacting, like if you got beat, that's not who you are, Like that, that doesn't define you. And I think detaching, that's something that I've been really working on is realizing I need to, like you said, analyze that, analyze that moment, analyze that coaching, analyze that program, maybe the set and rep scheme that we were doing. And not take it to, oh, you're, you're a crappy coach now. It's that, that was, that was a bad decision that I made. Now I can grow from it and move forward. Yeah, no, that's spot on. I think that's really powerful what you just said. And the, the one thing, like, I want to know what was, how did, cause you mentioned that that's how you were living your life. Was there a wake up call? Like, what was the moment where you, you, you decided to look at, at that and be like, I want to change this. Was it just a split decision? Was it a, a build up into that? Like, when did you decide to kind of turn off that ego and kind of switch paths in your life. There was a point where my wife and I ended up having this really in-depth conversation and she just, just put it out there that like you're being a selfish, egotistical maniac, you know, <laughs> for, for lack of a better word. Like it's just everything you're doing, like you're not paying attention to me as your wife. You're just, you're, you know, perhaps you're not even, you're not paying attention to your athletes as best as you could. Like, it's just, it's about you and like your followers and you're, you're just, it's just, you're just making it so much about you and yourself. Like where is the giving back to the people around you and the, the life balance? You know, I was on my phone constantly, just social media, texting people like stapled to my cell phone. And when we had that conversation, you know, that's where I just realized I can't keep going like this. Like I just, I'm not going to, I don't want to be the guy that's out here just being fraudulent and, inflating things to make it seem as though I'm one thing when, when I'm not, I just want to be myself and I want people to relate to me in terms of understanding who I am. And my mission is just, I want that for my athletes. I want them to know who I am. I want them to know that I'm going to do my best to practice what I preach. And this is who I am and I am who I am. And it's just, you can take it or leave it basically. You know, I mean, that's, that's where I started going with it because it was just, you start living in too much fluff and you kind of start forgetting who you are instead of just thinking about like, I'm just going to lead from the inside out rather than the outside in. You know, I don't need to define myself by what the, by what the outside is telling me I should be. I need to just be who I am and radiate from the inside out. And I can, that can affect my environment better. I believe if I'm able to be true to myself and radiate from the inside out. Yeah. That's uh I was just going to say that that change in you allowed you probably to coach better. And then that at the end of the day, it does allow you to affect the outside, but you're not, you're just, it's not focused on the outside as much. You focus on the inside. It's still changing the outside. I think there was a quote that I read the other day. It was, it's much better to change how you react to the world than the change, how the world reacts to you basically. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, even with just working with athletes, it's, am I going to try to change their mindset about my program? Right. Like if they're not feeling something with it, am I going to say like, they're stupid because my program is great. Let's say I need to pay attention to them. I need to pay attention to what's in front of me and the reality. And, and I got to change my program if it's not working. Right. It's not, the, it's not the athlete's fault. You know, so if they're not showing up and they're being a jerk, maybe, yeah, it could be their fault at some point. But, you know, more often than not, if, if we're not achieving results, I'm the one that's leading the session. Like how, 
how do I reflect on that and think, all right, it's not just about my program. It's about the two way street and the relationship with the athlete. So they're giving me feedback that will then affect my program. Just like I'm applying what I understand and what I know in this moment to design my program. And there has to be a middle ground between those two. And that's, I think that's part of building that trust with somebody and being authentic with that person. Yeah. And like you mentioned, it allows you to really solve the problem that's in front of you. And I think this is where, especially like you mentioned, like I, I'm the same way on social media. Like you see something cool and you're like, Oh man, should, should we be doing this? Or you just get almost so far into your own field of into the X's and O's and into this, that you're not looking at the problem in front of you anymore. You're looking at these like minute things that you're so far into that you've read about that you've seen on Instagram every single day that you're not solving the problem or the human or communicating with the person in front of you. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, recently, I, I mean, literally a matter of days ago, I, I did end up creating another Twitter profile and it's something that it's a project my wife and I are going to have together. So she's kind of working as my social media liaison right now. And we decided we're not going to have it on either of our phones, right? We're going to have it as a way to put out there what's happening at Indiana football and help promote the program. And, and from that standpoint, and um, you know, that's part of, of what we're trying to accomplish here, but you know, we're going to look at it as it's not about posting every day or, or even just surfing, you know, Twitter and looking at it. And, um, and all we did was, was make a Twitter profile, but it's, it's for us, it's going to be about, you know, if I have something that, you know, I've, I've written an article or whatever, like I can put that on there, but that's something that's been, uh, I've taken more time to think about that rather than like just a on the spot post of something, which is what I used to do, which I probably won't even use this, you know, next week but I'm like, here I am posting about it right now. And you're thinking, should you use it? But I'm not even going to use it next week. Right. So I'd rather take my time with it and be a little bit, you know, less involved and then just say, Hey, here's something just from a long period of time. Here's something I've seen. So I wrote an article about it. Like here it is, I'm sharing it, or here's what's going on with Indiana football or, or whatever, or here I am promoting one of our other staff members who's doing an awesome job. You know, it's just, it's just more conducive to that rather than me, me, me. Right. It's just, trying to be of service however possible and, and just try to be open. Just say like, here's, here's what's happening. I don't care if you criticize it. I want you to, cause I want to hear thoughts and that's why I'm putting it out there. So that's really my mindset with it now. Yeah. And this, that like realm of thinking allows you to put out content and just ideas and ways of the world that other people aren't. And that's why I feel like I get so much from a lot of your stuff is that you can tell there's a deep dive. You can tell that it's not almost the group think mentality of all of it. And then, you're able to come up with uh, one of the things I saw you talk about the other day is like the complex versus complicated with what athletes are and kind of the four coactive model of athletes, which is something that the first time I saw that, I think it was like two or three years ago, the first time you guys posted it with Fergus Connolly. And I was, I was like, well, that to me, that was like, Oh my gosh, it's so much sense. Like makes so much sense. Like, why did we not all think about this before? Like, why wasn't this something? And then you guys just put it in a way that clicked with me. Um, and I think that's because you're able to get out of the group think a little bit and, this is where I kind of want to transition into that what and like the, the what of what you're putting out. And can you kind of describe that, that four coactive model and then a little bit of the complex versus complicated to get the how you generally and holistically view an athlete and the person that you're working with? Yeah, I mean, just from a systems based approach, if you're thinking of complicated versus complex, you know, complicated can have all of these different parts that are that are interrelated to some degree, but the way that they operate is basically A to B to C, right? So A affects B, B affects C. It's more of this linear relationship. 
And a common example of a complicated system is an internal combustion engine or really just any engine, right? You take a car and a mechanic goes in and, you know, looks at the engine and sees something wrong. Like, oh, it's just, you know, whatever it might be. It's, it's, this is the issue right here. Let me go in and, and tweak that and fix that. Now the engine's going to run the way we expect it to run. So that's a complicated system where there's a lot of parts to it. You got to learn about it. You have to understand what each part is, but ultimately there's this nice, neat and tidy deterministic relationship where we can predict what's going to happen in that system. So in biology and in science, right, it's just the more you look into these life sciences, you have these fractal complex patterns and layers and layers and layers of all of these different components that are interrelated and they interact with each other. But the way in which they interact with each other is is complex in the sense that you don't always know what's affecting the next thing. And you don't always know how one tweak here might totally drastically change a system somewhere else. So, you know, a common issue everybody looks at is a hamstring strain. And some people think we can solve that by doing Nordic hamstring curls, right? Like eccentric hamstring curls, that's just going to take away our hamstring strength. Well, we know from the research that that's not, it's, it, there's a positive impact that that's occurring with that in theory, but we still haven't seen a reduction in hamstring injuries. So there's more of a complex problem associated with it when we're dealing with athletes. And we have to look at all of these different layers, because if we're just doing Nordics, but then we're ignoring perhaps an athlete's sprinting technique or the way that they're performing from a biomechanical standpoint. So we're trying to get their hamstring as strong as we can in the weight room, but then we see them on the field and they're, they're running like garbage and we're not addressing that fact. Like that's another layer, right? So it's just, how do we as practitioners or sports performance individuals do our best to understand the complexity of the athlete and all of the layers that go into their performance. And that's part of just trying to seek reality in my opinion. And that's where the four collective model comes into play is basically you just have all these different forms of preparation that are occurring at the same time all the time with an athlete. So you have, you know, your physical preparation as one of them, that's one coactive, that's your strength conditioning. So lifting weights, doing sprints, performing jumps, whatever you would do in a typical strength and conditioning environment. Like that's what we're doing there. We're trying to physically prepare this athlete to have the fitness, the underlying fitness qualities to just survive in the game and perform competently in the game. But I think that's where we have the disconnect is that there are these three other coactives that are heavily involved in how that player is going to play the game. One of them is psychological. You know, that's, it could be considered common sense, but how many people are really considering how it doesn't matter how fast, strong, or powerful an athlete is, if their mindset is not where it needs to be from a mental health standpoint or a motivational standpoint to want to play the game, they're not going to utilize their physical gifts effectively, right? So we have to understand how that's impacting this player and who they are as a person and what their personality is. So all these psychological factors involved. And then we have, just from a more sports-specific standpoint, we have the tactical preparation, the technical preparation. So the tactical is going to be how well does this player understand the game, right? Like, how, do, do they even, like in football, do they know where to line up? Do they know what their responsibility is? I know when I was in college, we put players on the field that were starters. They started and they didn't know the playbook, right? So they were out there because they were physical specimens. This guy is 6'3 and 215 pounds at safety. Like he looks like a freak. Let's just throw him out there. But tactically, he didn't even know what he was doing. So again, like, can he utilize his physical gifts appropriately in the game context? He might be the fastest guy on the team, right? At that point, you know, speed will not kill in that standpoint because he doesn't know where to use his speed or how to use his speed effectively within the context of the playbook and what that's 
demanding the athlete to do tactically. So that's what we mean by tactical preparation. What's their game intelligence? What's their game awareness? And then technically is I could understand the playbook through and through, but do I have the technical skill set to accomplish those tactical aims? So if I'm playing defensive back in college and I know how to line up and whatever, right? So I know I got to cover this guy tactically. I understand this is my guy. I line up inside leverage, whatever, you know, like whatever it might be. But once the ball is snapped, do I have the technical skill to cover that guy? Am I able to do that? Do I have I worked the appropriate technical movements and, and strategies to successfully accomplish my tactical aim? So again, it's not it's not even just knowing the playbook. It, you know, a quarterback could know like somebody could know everything a quarterback needs to know, but if they can't throw a football, <laughs> if they don't have the technical skill to throw a football, like it doesn't matter how much they know about the game. So again, all of these layers interact with each other. So when we hear people say, oh, this guy didn't perform well because, you know, he, he wasn't fast enough or he wasn't strong enough. Well, how do you know? Have you, have you looked at all these different contexts? So for the layman to watch a sports game on TV and see somebody not perform effectively, they might say that guy's just slow. But maybe it's not that he's slow. Maybe he was totally just caught out of position because he tactically didn't know where to be or he technically – did something wrong, took a wrong step, didn't understand like what zone he had to cover in that moment, or just didn't, didn't hit the right angle into that zone, whatever it might be. There's so many factors involved, right? Or maybe he just had this total mental collapse on the play and just forgot everything, you know? So (laughs) psychologically he just was somewhere else. And so that's why the four coactive model sounds simple in theory. Like people, okay, I get it. I know there's physical, psychological, technical, tactical. Like we've all read that a million times in all these books, but are you really considering what that means for how that player performs? So Ferguson and I, in our book series, the process, we try to, especially in level two, we try to talk about this idea of maybe you should construct a four coactive profile, right? Try to connect with your sport coaches, or if you're in the private sector, it's a little more difficult to do, but at least if in, in my setting now, can we connect with the sport coaches and try to, all have this conversation where like, where is this player actually limited? Is it a tactical issue, technical issue, psychological issue, or is it a physical issue? And us as strength conditioning professionals, we need to make sure that there is as minimal physical issues as possible. We need to make sure it's not a strength issue. It's not a power issue. It's not a speed issue as much as possible because in an ideal world, it would just be about how well does this player know the game? Does he know where to be? And can he just, can you just do it? Right. So that's, that's where I see it and how the, all those coactives interact. No, and I think that's awesome that you bring it up because the, the number one thing, like you said, like most people bring it up like, oh yeah, four coactive model, four coactive model. And then for the off season, they'll spend every single hour they have in the weight room or, you know, like, and then they'll put all of their effort into one quadrant of the four that are interlaced into developing that good athlete into developing the football player. And it, it's kind of like we, we lose track of what the actual goal is. Like we try to get their squat up, even, even like sprints, even speed, which we know is important. Like we try to get speed up, but if that guy's already running a four, four, but on the field, it's, it's not looking like a four, four, what is getting that guy faster going to do? Is, is that the, the missing link of our entire complex puzzle that you mentioned? Yeah. And that's where if you take a holistic mindset, approach to it that way. And if you, obviously there's going to be shades of gray at all times. And so, um, but if you were to just look at four quadrants, it's like these nice and neat, you know, coactive quadrants right there. It's funny because then you think about how physical preparation is really just 25% of what goes into being an athlete, right? So it's, it's like, I think a lot of strength conditioning coaches just completely assume that they have so much more power than they do. But in reality, if we understand the context of what we're doing, 
is we are trying to mitigate the physical constraints on our athletes as much as possible. And obviously we are going to also have an effect on their psychological coactive. We're with them more than anybody. So we have to understand how to treat them in a way that's healthy and still allow them to accomplish their goals from a a psychological standpoint. So we owe it to ourselves and our players to try to understand the psychological coactive as best we can. But then also, you know, we do influence the technical coactive a little bit as well. If we're incorporating multidirectional work or open reactive agility type of activities, we will influence some of the technical elements, but we should still understand that it's going to be from a general standpoint more so. We're not trying to be that player's position coach. We're just trying to help positively influence their physical skill set and, you know, help with their psychological skill set as well where we can. Uh, But that's, that's the extent of our context because when it gets to largely tactical and technical, that's where the sport coaches are going to take over. And we just have to accept that that's, that's what it is. Our role is foundational. Our, our role is supportive. We're not the captain of the ship. The head coach is the captain of the ship and that's just the way it is. And that's reality. Yeah. And then I think it's uh, it's almost our role, like our next biggest job after the physical and the psychological components is to be that communicator of the importance of the technical and tactical components and trying to be, I know, uh, they talk about like being the, the engineer of all of it. But if you're the one that possesses this knowledge in, in the organization, even if it's not your job, like it becomes your job to communicate to the head coach, to the captain of the ship. Hey, these are the things that we need to be focusing on. Here's, here's a plan that we could do with it. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing about being in a team setting is, and this, this is my opinion, of course, is do we really need one person to just be the guy that's like the all knowing wizard of Oz You know, I think it's just, if we can start these conversations, if somebody can just spark this conversation, then we all share in the process. I mean, so many brains are always going to be so much better than one, in my opinion. And I think sport coaches know a lot more than they're given credit for in our field. I think a lot of us assume these coaches don't know anything, but I mean, if we look at context and we look at technical and tactical, sure, they might not know as much about exercise physiology, but in terms of how to accomplish tactical aims and perform technical skills, they, they know a lot from those contexts. So we need to understand those. So if we can have the conversation with a coach and say, listen, you know, this is just reality that this guy's a physical specimen. He's a freak, right? And we're going to continue to allow him to maintain his physical outputs and still it, it improve them and capitalize on them where we can. But ultimately, you know, we're not seeing many limitations from him physically when we're testing him, when we're taking our data and our metrics, like he's fast, he's powerfully strong. So we're having an honest conversation with you about, you know, it's, it's going to come down to how, how dedicated is he to learning the game and learning his position? I mean, that's ultimately where he's going to have his, his limitation. So, and vice versa, you know, we could have players that know the game inside and out. They play with great technique and then it all, and then the responsibility really falls on us where he's just physically not, quite there where the other guys are. And maybe he's not going to ever be this elite physical performer, but if we know he's lacking compared to another guy physically, then it's, it's on us to try to continue to improve him as much as we possibly can, whether it's speed or power or strength or whatever, but we always look at the game first. So how does this player play the game? Does he not play fast? Does he not play with strength? Does he not play with power? And then work back to figure out what that issue is. Is it because he doesn't understand where to be? Does he not have the right technique or does he actually just lack the raw strength, the raw power, the raw speed? So we just start having these conversations and we all share in that process. And I think we're fortunate here at Indiana that our head coach, Tom Allen is totally into the performance stuff. He wants to have these conversations. And I understand 
how fortunate we are to be in that situation. And I obviously have a boss in Aaron Woman, who is a guy that is challenging me and the rest of our staff to go as deep down the rabbit hole as we possibly can. Like he just wants to find the quote unquote, Holy grail, even though we know we're never going to find it, but we're just, we want to utilize all the brains in our operation. I don't want to be a guy that's in there saying like, I have all the answers because I sure as hell don't. But if we understand the framework of conversation, we can start to pick and play from what other people are seeing at different vantage points. It's not just my vantage point. It's the sport coaches. It's the rest of our sports performance staff. What are people seeing that I might be missing? Yeah. And having that conversation, like you mentioned, I'm in a very similar situation to you. I feel like where I feel like I'm super blessed with the coaches I'm surrounded with one, because I'm an alumni of the school and I just have, I have the backing of the coaches, which is, there's a lot of coaches listening, maybe listening out there that they're like, that conversation will never happen. And that's something that I think you, you mentioned a little bit is, one, not assuming the sport coach doesn't know, because I talked to Andy Ryland on the podcast and he was like, a lot of times they know, but they know in a different language or they just yeah. communicate in the, the sports language. And I think that's, I think that's something that we need to emphasize as well as making sure we're not like talking in sports performance worlds. Like we're talking in the football world or whatever sport they're playing. I think that's super important. Yeah, whatever the language is, and it's, it's going to have to start with the head coach and what his language is and you, because, because he's the guy and everything trickles down from him. Like, you know, he steers the ship wherever we're headed. It's going to be because of him. It's not because of me as a strength coach. It's not even because of Aaron Wallman as our head strength coach. It's, it's, it's Tom Allen, Tom Allen is our head coach and where he steers the ship, we're going to go. So whatever the language is, it has to start with what is coach Allen? What, what is, what's the language that he wants to speak in? And we all speak that language and, and you know, it, we can, it's awesome when you have that relationship and you think about it, cause you have, you could be doing, any kind of drill or something on the field and say, Hey, remember when coach, whatever said this, right. It's the same principle right here. Like, this is what we're talking about. You know, it could be whatever, you know, shimmy compress or <laughs> whatever you want to, whatever you want to get back to, whatever's like the, the current uh, coaching lingo of a certain technique or whatever. But that's where, you know, this is why the coach is saying that. And this is why we're, we're reiterating that, you know, when, when he says sink your hips, well, why are you sinking your, why does he say sink your hips? Because when you lower your center of mass, you're more stable when you change direction. That's why we're talking about playing low. This is what, playing low is that phrase is referring to, right? So just little things like that. And I agree with you. They, they know a lot more than they're giving credit for, but they just, they don't say it in physiology language. Right. So, but it doesn't mean they don't know. Yeah. And then once you get to get to having these conversations, like you, like you mentioned, like I, I love, I, I just related back to, I think it was, it was a couple months ago, we were talking about a player who's a defensive back and they were like, this, this guy's like slow. Like he's not fast enough to play here. And what I was able to do as a sports coach, like I had his laser time numbers for all. And he was one of the top three fastest on a team. It was, it was a crazy situation, but number wise, straight line speed, he was on a top three fastest. And I was able to share those numbers. And because we had a relationship in which we were able to communicate, we realized, all right, this guy isn't slow in quotations. He's game speed slow. Like he, he's processing yeah. things slower. He isn't confident in his ability, but now we know we can attack that rather than if we didn't have any of this, we didn't have this communication. The coaches saw that he's slow. Then we're running more sprints with him. We're spending more time working on something that's already a strength of his and not attacking his weakness. Yeah. And I love that you brought up that example. Cause that is my eureka moment with all of that was down when I was in Austin and I, I had this guy who he had played running back university of Texas a little while back. And he stopped by the gym and did a workout and he said, let me do a workout with you. And I said, okay, like, let's work out together. And we went outside and we had the timing gates set up, right? Uh, the Brower timing gates. Everything was fully automatic and all that. So we're running these 10, 20-yard sprints. And I was beating him in the linear 10 to 20-yard sprints. 
And then he said to me, all right, how about this? How about I line up about a yard away from you and then we'll switch back and forth. And like, when I'm in front of you, I'm going to go, you try to catch me. When you're in front of me, you try to run away from me. Right. And he caught me every single time and I didn't catch him once. And that's where I was just like, that's what that perception action cycle is all about. Like the information movement coupling idea is I have the raw speed, right? From a raw speed standpoint, you could argue I was faster in that on that day. But when it came to something where I had to utilize the information of my environment, react to it appropriately, and then utilize that speed all at the same time with that brain body connection, he was a better performer than I was. And so, yeah, that's awesome that you said that where it's like, that's our job though, is to say, it's not the raw speed. It's not the raw strength, not the raw power. Let's, let's try to make sure that that's not the case. It's, it's going to be for a lot of developmental players, right? Like they will need to improve those factors. But our goal is to get to the point where that is not no longer the argument. And if he's not playing fast, it's probably because he's technically inefficient or he just doesn't quite know where he's supposed to be. Or as one more alternative, psychologically, he's just his head's in the clouds, right? So you have to look at all these different factors and all these coactives. And that's the only way to really understand what's going on with a player. And that's the next thing I kind of want to dive into you with you a little bit, especially now that you're in the college sector and how you're trying to introduce these perception reaction type games, these small sided type games with your athletes to, to work these things or how you plan on it anyway, since the, the virus kind of shut it down. Yeah. I mean, we're going to do it for sure. It's um, something that I'm very passionate about. And Aaron Wallman's, given me a role where he wants me to dive really far down the rabbit hole on how to develop our, our field-based training and our speed and our agility and things that we're doing on the field. Um, so I'm taking that role very seriously. And, you know, I, I know in my experience at DeFranco's, I started to fall in love with a lot of that stuff. And I think it's different in the private sector because you don't have the influence of, things like captain's practices or player led seven on sevens, you know, where that does exist now in the college setting. So what I'm hoping, what I did then at the Franco's was I scaled everything out from uh, player interactions at the one-on-one level to, you know, that could be something as basic as just a cat and mouse drill. Like you try to catch this guy, like what I described before it could be like, Hey, you mirror this guy and go where he goes. You try to evade this guy one-on-one, you know, in, a, in some type of box or something like just try to get past him while he tries to catch you. So I had one-on-one interactions. I would scale that out to doing things like two on two or maybe three on three, just adding more players into the equation. And I also did multiplayer small sided games where we were doing, you know, three on three, five on five, seven on seven. But a lot of the reason why I did that was because they weren't doing anything else. You know, there was nothing outside of our workouts and what was going on there. So I understand in the college setting now that the captain's practices are something that's going to happen. You know, that's something where they are, are, you know, our coaches are are making sure that they understand the game as best as possible, what's expected of them. And then they're going to be expected to handle that as players where, where our team captains are expected to be true leaders and, and have them on the field and do some of these positional drills, some of these one-on-one situations, seven on seven, you know, whatever that might be. And so how are we going to find the balance now to where we're accounting for that? And so for me, I, I really do believe in a minimum effective dose approach. So I think that's obviously a, a buzz thing to say, but like if we can look at everything that these players are doing, and obviously there's going to be stuff, Maybe they're going to go play basketball in the rec center. We don't know about it. But 
if what we do know is going to happen is they're going to work out with us. They're going to have captain's practices. So if we can account for those and layer those into our entire program mindset, then we start to say like, well, they're going to do seven on seven. That's a small sided game, right? So that's going to occur. So do we need to beat a dead horse and do a small sided game in our training? You know, to, because they're going to do this multiple times a week. So on their own, they're, it's, they're going to be exposed to it. So what do we do? What can we work on? What can we, what can we focus on? in our sessions with them, instead of just like constantly beating a dead horse on the same performance-based quality, you know, perhaps when we're, what, what we'll end up doing, and I can't really fully speak to it because we haven't fully planned it all out yet, but I imagine where we're going to go with it is, is really focus on the one versus one interaction and what we're doing in our workouts and keep it very basic and simple where we can really just try to focus on the brain aspect and not quite as much on the physical. So what I mean by that is like, we're going to focus on physical and all these other activities, you know, sprints, jumps, plyometrics, change of direction drills, lifting, things like that. So how can I utilize these one-on-one interactions to just put them in experiences of discomfort, anxiety, and a little bit of healthy stress. And what I mean by healthy stress is just frustrating them. Not, I don't want to stress them out completely, but I want them to see things that are complex and chaotic and try to pick up on this other player across from them, learn about how to perceive what's happening, how to get their eyes in the right areas and just challenge the brain from that standpoint. So maybe we're using smaller areas of the field. So it's not as physically demanding, but in these one-on-one interactions, I want them to, it's an, it's an amazing opportunity to get more reps of, you know, in football, I call it good on good, right? So we can take our best players and put them against our best players and just do a basic evasion drill, make it really competitive and have like a, you know, a lot of fun with it but it's lower risk because we're going to keep the field space lower or, or smaller, I should say, and just, and just let them have fun with it and just say, Hey, you know, how are you going to handle this adversity of possibly looking stupid and everybody's watching, you know, that's football. That's in, in, in one-on-one in the highest game moments. A lot of times it's just one-on-one. It's you going up for that catch while the other guy's trying to defend it. It's you trying to beat one guy in the open field. It's you trying to make that block on that one guy, right? It's just, can you make that tackle on that guy in the open field? So, can we put them in those situations where psychologically they're trying to deal with the stress of that, the, the, the potential just nerves of being exposed and, and possibly failing and how do they handle that adversity? And I think that's going to be the biggest positive impact of that, where we can have the conversation with our players and say, listen, you just quit, man. Or, Hey, that was a great job. You didn't quit. Right. So just start getting comfortable in that discomfort. And, and I see that. I think for us, that's where, um, some of the bigger benefits going to occur. And then they can probably then take that. And then when they go do their captain's practices and stuff they're now we're hoping that they're going to be able to understand a little bit better, how to read and react to what's going on around them. And also psychologically just deal with a little bit more pressure and start to be a pro about it in terms of just how they handle their composure and how they start to challenge themselves. Yeah. That's an awesome point about almost making them, and I, this is how I kind of set up a little bit is trying to make them fail a little bit more and just fail and react a little bit more in our training sessions, in our small sided games, and especially when we're build, building up a spring ball. So at the division three uh, level, we get, we get a block of time before the spring ball period, which is like our, our biggest block that we get them as strength coaches and trying to get them to fail against good versus good and getting that high level of competition. So when it is spring ball and they're going against scouts or something like that, like they're not failing as much. Like the good guys are winning, the, the other guys aren't as much and trying to, expose them to other stuff. So this is the other way I break it down is when they're doing the seven on seven and when they're doing the football, other small side of games of football, maybe it's inside hall, half line, that type of stuff. They're doing very strict stuff, very, um, 
not free flowing, very like play call. This is what we're going to do. This is our spot. And I try to expose them to almost the exact opposite, try to keep it free flowing and try to keep it chaotic for them to almost like talk about like toolbox and movement, like trying to give them more toolboxes and more, more solutions to the, the problems that they're going to see, which I know Sean Mishka talks about a lot. Yeah. And that's, that's an awesome point. And that's why I think that when it comes to some of these, uh, you know, perception-based activities that you're doing, these perceptual cognitive activities, these open reactive drills, basically, I think that it's more about looking to the general patterns of play than it is trying to be so super specific. So, you know, general pattern of play, can I get past somebody? Can I, can I track somebody appropriately? Can I mirror this person and stay with them and cover them appropriately? So these are general patterns of play that are occurring. And for me in football, it's great because you look at special teams and special teams is where it doesn't matter what position you actually play. You got to do all these general patterns of play. You got to block people. You got to tackle people. If you're, you can be a receiver and you got to go tackle somebody on kickoff, right? So can you track somebody? Can you, can you evade somebody? Can you stay with somebody? Can you, can you cover that person? So, um, I just see it from that standpoint is you just explain that to them. Like, Hey, these are general patterns of play. We're going to have this and we're going to incorporate this. But at the same time, we're not going to coach you much on this. We're, we'll coach you on the weight room. We'll coach you on linear speed activities. We'll coach you even on change of direction activities that are closed in nature. When it comes to this stuff, here's your task. Get past that guy, figure it out and let it be free flowing. Right. And so that's what I always loved about it as they start to explore, you know, their, their bodies a little bit more. They start to, if, if I, when I would do this stuff at DeFranco's, like I had, I had one group that, was just two guys and it was, one was a running back and one was a linebacker. They're both free agent NFL guys. And it was hilarious because I would just do running back versus linebacker type of stuff, right? You running back, get, get past him, linebacker, don't let him get past you. Right. And we just did that one week. It would be the running back could not get past the linebacker at all. Right. And then the very next week, same two guys, same exact activity. All of a sudden now this linebacker can't seem to catch the running back. Like he just by necessity to survive in that environment, he had to figure out a way to solve that problem. And to me, that's where the open reactive stuff, it's just, it's so cool because you take some of these, these general principles of movement that you could coach, you know, how to accelerate properly, how to decelerate properly, whatever. And now it's just like, Hey, your body's already felt this before. And I just go focus on the task you know, you, you, your body knows the position, but now how do you apply it? How do you fluctuate, you know, how deep you get into a cut or how far you step outside your center of mass and start figuring out how to be effective against something that you're perceiving that's right in front of you when it's like instantaneous, you can't really think about it. It's just, how do you, how does your body learn to cope with that? And how does it learn to adapt and evolve to where it's able to solve that task? Yeah. And something I'm interested in hearing your thoughts about, because I've been going back and forth on it a little bit with myself is how do you balance, like you mentioned, you coach the sprints, you coach the closed, um, closed change of direction drills and, um, balancing like the, the, the fixing aspect of this, like fixing that athlete, putting them in these perfect positions and quotations and doing this type of stuff. And then balancing that with allowing your athlete to figure it out, allowing the environment to shape what they're doing. Uh, I bring it back. So like yesterday, I just, I broke down like, warm-up like are you better off doing like a structured warm-up like working high knees doing that type of stuff in these perfect positions that you you want or doing a game like let's say even spike ball like i took a couple photos from a spike ball game that we were playing and none of the positions they were in in spike ball were going to mirror a high knee or anything like that that perfect position but 
a lot of them, they, they, they were falling, moving, doing stuff they would do on the field. So how do you, like, how do you personally go about that and your thought process in that? Yeah. So to me, I think of it, you have so many fractal layers that we talked about before complexity on top of complexity, layers and layers and layers. So the way I think of it is, you know, why, why are we going to lift you know, and it, it, the answer is always going to be, we want to improve general force production. We want to possibly improve range of motion. We want to load the athlete and, and their tissues and improve tissue integrity. You know, there's all these arguments like that, which hundred percent makes sense physiologically. Like you have to build that capacity for, for the tissues to handle stress. So why are we sprinting? Well, we want to build the raw central nervous system ability to activate the body to be faster. And we also want to prepare the tissues for operating at very high impacts at very high speeds. So again, there's your argument for that. Well, then you look at something like a, a close change of direction activity. Why are we going to do that? Well, it's just, it's sort of a similar argument. You're building volume of load in position, you know, and, and mobility, like all of these same factors are there, tissue integrity, force, power, speed. But now it's just, we want to do so with very specific vectors associated with the sport. So like a squat is just, you know, it's a vertical plane activity and it's, it's, so you're, you're with it, with the lifting, you're totally overloading the force side of the thing, right. In a very simplistic motion. But then how do we then apply force in something that is uh, more of a complicated or I really should say more of a complex motion, something that's more sport specific, you know, so now we're, we're achieving uh, vectors that are going to be more associated with the sport. So there are layers there, right? Just from a general physical preparation standpoint. So you have specificity in terms of the force application, the vector of that force application and how that can change from the weight room to the field. But then, you know, then you have the argument of tissue preparation and then what are the actual speeds being hit? Like they always say, there's nothing you can really do in a weight room. That's going to totally transfer to speed. Cause it's just so different from a force time standpoint, but so you have raw output ability, you have force vectors you're trying to develop, you have tissue integrity. So these are all physical, physiological, and biomechanical arguments. And I think that they're valid. We need to prepare athletes in, in all of these things. But then you also have to consider the brain and how the brain is operating in athletics and how are athletes, you know, able to connect that with like what they're seeing and how they choose certain actions. So for me, it comes down to if we're in the weight room, I want to teach an athlete to lift in a way that's biomechanically safe and just abides by the laws of physics in terms of efficiency, right? I know if I squat with completely awful form, I'm probably going to load my structures with stress that is counterproductive. And that's just because I'm not respecting the laws of efficiency or, you know, the efficiency as it relates to the laws of physics. So the same thing is going to apply, you know, with sprinting. So, when it comes to coaching positions, I'm trying to get them to understand what is safe and efficient in terms of just these basic laws of biomechanics. So, you know, that's why I, in my presentation this past weekend, I just said, if you want to be stable, when you're changing direction, you lower the center of mass, right? That puts you in a greater position of stability. You plant outside your center of mass and the opposite line of intended directions. If I want to cut, if I want to move to the left with a cut, I plant my right foot into the ground to the right outside my center of mass. So I can cut back to the left. So just getting athletes to understand these general movement principles in, in how to accelerate properly in terms of just biomechanics 
That's what I want them to learn. It's not, hey, you need the exact same degree of knee bend as that guy over there. You need this, you need this exact body lean or this exact takeoff angle. I'm not concerned with coaching super specific positions. I'm just concerned with coaching general movement principles or in dynamical systems theory, they call it attractors of movement, things that are stable, things that are, are principle based. So you can utilize them in multiple situations. So lowering my center of mass as I start to decelerate, that can be used whether I'm trying to go from backward motion to forward motion, left motion to right motion. It's, it's a general principle that's there. So I know anytime I change direction, I should just lower my center of mass to be more stable, right? So when I'm coaching, uh, that's what I'm coaching with some of these closed activities. So even with sprinting, you know, if he looks a little different than the next guy, but it looks safe, you know, it, Charlie Francis always said, if it looks right, it flies right. And the idiosyncrasies are going to be there. So if it looks weird, let's just, let's maybe take a video, look at it in slow motion. And some guys might look like, you know, they're running inefficiently, but when you take the video and you slow it down a little bit, you start seeing, well, he looks like he's butt kicking out the back, but it's just because his shin is so long. Like he's just a long guy and he's actually, he's hitting the positions that are biomechanically effective and safe. So to me, it's really just a safety thing and an efficiency thing. So um, I want them to understand what's biomechanically efficient and then from there, I let them explore their own bodies, you know, and just kind of see what they do. So it could be something like squat. One guy's going to be more upright in appearance than somebody who's got really long legs. who might be looking like his chest is a little bit more parallel to the ground. But, is, you know, is he loading his hips properly? Is his spine in a neutral position? Is he activating his core properly? Is he utilizing his postural muscles away in his feet and his knees? Are they in good positions that are safe? You know, is it really damaging the system? You know, it's just that's where we need to understand it. You know, where do we step in and where do we, where do we not? Cause if we don't need to step in, all we need to tell that athlete is, Hey, great job. You know, we, we're going to do another rep. You know, it's like, you just, that's where you can take it in my opinion. No, I, that that's awesome. I think it, to me, the way I'm processing what you're saying is you create a foundation of movement for them to draw upon and then reserves of movement, reserves of force output, reserves of velocity. And both of these things are able to apply to those small side of games to their sport. But that, that, that's what you're trying to do, reserves and foundations. Yeah, I mean, Stu McMillan, who I talk to very frequently, he, he had a quote where he basically said, you got to learn the rules before you can bend or break them. And it's not these like solidified, you know, uh, specific positions. They're just general rules, which is, you know, everything I talked about before to keep you in a biomechanically efficient and safe position. And once you understand that, you know, you start – you start developing the idea of what a safe position feels like, you know, and then that's where it becomes a little bit more automated over time. And I know Lauren Landau is another great colleague of mine. I talk to him frequently as well as he, he's a big believer in that as well is with the closed stuff. We're not going to try to have the argument that it's going to necessarily improve in-game agility in terms of the actual specific performance of that. But where's the benefit in it is the athlete is still experiencing that position and kind of feeling where their feet are and starting to explore their body and what that experience feels like in an environment where they're not really perceiving anything except just that feeling of their feet on the ground and all. And then say, Hey, this feels better than this. That feels awkward. That's probably not right. Because when athletes in my experience hit a good acceleration position or a good speed position, or they come out of a cut with a little bit more stability, I mean, almost always they're going to be like, that felt really good. And it's like, well, that's, because it was more efficient. You know, it's just, if it looks right, it flies right. You know, so um, I agree with him on that. It's just, there are multiple experiences that we can give these athletes. 
And some of it is going to be turned inward, like feel your own body, feel what your feet feel like on the ground, feel your core activate, understand how to do that. But then of course, when it comes to, we want to do that earlier on and further removed from the sport. Cause on the sport day, I don't want them thinking like, what is my, what do my feet feel like in a football game? I just want them to focus on, Hey, I need to get here and catch this ball or whatever. So, but I think these are all these different experiences that we give to the brain. And I love that, that quote that I heard from buddy Morris a while back where, you know, when the brain stops learning and stops growing. So we're just trying to give the brain these different things to learn so that the brain can continue to grow. And we're just, it's just these layers of experiences that we give to the athlete and I would rather give them all of these different various experiences instead of like, Hey, let's just lift. Then let's do like a million yards of tempo running or whatever. And then let's just go play small sided games. I'd rather give them all of it, you know, just all these different experiences, closed, open, you know, all these different vectors, all these different positions. Cause I just want them to be as motor proficient as they can. And I'm sure I'm going to change my mind as time goes on and I'm going to learn new and different ways to do things, but I'm just trying to think of it from the athlete perspective, the player experience side of things. No, I'm very similar. I think, I think that's awesome talking about basically not just swearing by like a hammer, right? Like you're, you're not just using one tool with your athlete. There, there's many tools to use. There's many answers to the solutions. And this where a lot of coaches, I feel like get in trouble is they, they, they like swear by a tool. They, they pigeonhole themselves a little bit and then they never open their minds up to using other things. Like you see it on both rounds. You see it in just the, the strength and like tempo run, like very strict, everything's closed. We're going to work this. And you also see it in the, the perception reaction. Like that's the only thing we're going to do. And I, to me, I, uh, Carter Schmitz was on the podcast, but he was talking about like the gray area is always going to be the best. Like trying to find a way, maybe you're 70, 30% on both sides, but you can draw from both ends of it to get your athlete to where you want to go. Absolutely. And I'm a big, I'm a big believer. And when you look at things from a scientific standpoint, it's in my opinion, it's almost always not this or that, but it's both. And I remember really early on reading super training, which I still don't fully understand, but you know, it's just one of those things where I remember they just had all of these examples of experiments, like one group did this, one group did that. And then group C did both. It was always like group C did better ultimately, you know? So it's just, you know, just getting, being able to try to experience all these different things and, and just still keep a relatively simplistic framework. You don't have to overcomplicate the process, but it's just still respecting what the process is and, and the holism that goes along with it. Oh, let's transition to our rapid fire round. And this is kind of the questions I ask all of my guests. Um, they're kind of my like top five favorite questions. So we'll start with the first one. What are, what are your favorite books for, for either anybody in this field or life? Like what, what are your, just your favorite books that you think listeners can get a lot out of? I mean, I have hundreds of them, but just five of them that stand out to me right now, just because of where my thinking is, is number one is uh, game speed by Ian Jeffries. Cause I think especially the newer edition of the book, he does a really great job of everything we're talking about in this podcast, like how to incorporate some closed activities with open activities and the theory behind it and in a way that's practical and makes sense. So in my opinion, I think it's a really great book. I think number two is team of teams by general Stanley McChrystal, because that was one of the books that really allowed me to understand complexity from more of a simplistic viewpoint. Like he writes it in such a way that it, it clicks with you, at least with me. And so I think he did a great job breaking it down and how it applied to the military, how it applies to business, how it can apply to sport, just this idea of complexity and what it all entails. And then number three is 59 Lessons by Fergus Connolly. 
you know, obviously Fergus is, is a good friend of mine. We wrote a book series together that is still in the works for uh, some of our last two books in, in the series, but 59 lessons I thought was great because he just took some of these realistic, practical experiences he had throughout his entire career and just broke them down into 59 different lessons. And some of them really stand out and I hold them dear in my mind as to how important they are for coaches to understand, especially in, in terms of context and understanding what's happening. Uh, number four, I think triphasic training is one of those books that's going to stand the course of time in terms of helping, especially early level coaches just have this like awesome physiological understanding of uh, strength training and different ways to incorporate it and why we're doing certain things in the weight room and in our training. So triphasic training by Cal Deeds and Ben Peterson, I thought, you know, it's somewhat of an older book at this point, but I think it's going to stand the test of time because I think it's just, they did such a great job of trying to explain the why behind doing certain forms of lifting uh, and, and not just lifting, but all forms of training. And the last one that I thought was from a, from principal perspective, more so than the practical application side of it, I thought strength training and coordination by Franz Bosch just totally allowed me to think outside of my, my wheelhouse and start just saying, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe these are things that I need to think about. You know, a lot of it is might not necessarily be scientifically proven fully or, or fully researched, but a lot of it is just these ideas of like, maybe things aren't always quite what they may appear to be. And I think he does a good job um, just looking at the dynamical systems theory approach and understanding complexity as well. So I think that's a, just a good book for coaches to at least go through. And all these books, you don't want to take them too literally. You just want to absorb the principles and concepts from them. But those are five that stand out to me at this point in time. We, we got to put number six. We got to put your book on there, the process. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. If you want to have a, a shameless plug, they, yeah, the, the process series with, with Fergus Connolly, we have level one and level two out right now. And level one was trying to sum up a lot of what he wrote in his other book, Game Changer, which I would also add to a list. But um, in level two, we try to get in a little bit deeper. And really that whole project was taking all the work he's done in his experience and in his career. And I just tried to write a book out of it. Basically he just handed me his stuff and we, we put it together and we worked together on it. And it was a really fun project. I learned a ton from it and I continue to learn a ton from him and his experience. I love it. Next question. Who, who's the guest that you think we should have on this podcast? This is kind of how you, you got on, how we get a lot of our guests on and how I, I learn a lot of stuff. <laughs> I think a guy that stands out to me is uh, Connor Milkey at Auburn. So he works with the Auburn football team under coach Ryan Russell and Ryan Russell does an amazing job. His staff is, is incredible. And all the guys that I've talked to from that staff, some of them have moved on at this point in time, but they, they do such a great job. And, and Connor's so good at just trying to understand the big picture. He's another awesome young coach. I think he's about the same age as me. And uh, he's been at Auburn for, for a little while now. And uh, he, he just does a fantastic job. And I think he's got just an amazing set of knowledge. And I just, I feel he needs to be recognized a lot more for, for his knowledge and, and his ability to coach and, and who he is and what he understands. And he's, he's just an awesome guy. So I would definitely recommend getting him on here if, if you reach out to him. Oh, heck yes. I love the, the, the undercover, the underground, I should say coaches that I, I haven't heard of before. Those are my favorite ones. They usually come on here with fire and rabbit holes and it usually goes fast. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's been in the trenches for a while. He's, he's an awesome guy. The, the next question, um, and this is, man, this probably would have been a good question for you six months ago, but uh, what's kind of next for you? What's kind of your next big step in the process? Maybe it's one year from now, a five-year goal. Like what's kind of the next thing for you? 
All I can think about right now is is getting Indiana football to be the, the best team in the country. You know, just whatever I can do to contribute to that. It, it's not. I don't want to be here and say I want to. We want to build the fastest team in the country. It, to me, it's, I, I just want them to be the best players in the country, and whatever that whatever that takes. And like I said, all of this talk of context, I, I just I want to understand the, the whole thing. And, and I I think that Coach Wellman and I share the same goal of we're not going to pride ourselves on how fast somebody runs or how much weight they lift. We're going to pride ourselves on how many guys were never thought they would play here and now they're starting. How many guys are you know, we're, we're starters, but not really recognized. Now they're first team all conference or how many guys had no shot at the NFL. And now they're, they're on Mel Kuyper's big board, you know, just stuff like that. So our whole thing is how do we, my, my whole mission at this point is just how can I help these players and service these players as much as possible and really make Indiana football a threat in the big 10. That's the only goal I can foresee right now. That's awesome because that ties back to the one of the very first things you said about why you got on this field is because it provided you that opportunity. A coach provided you that opportunity, and now you That's get, right. get a chance to pay it back. Next, uh, next question is one of my favorite of the podcast is when all this coaching stuff is over, uh, all the author stuff is over, all of this is over. You're on your deathbed. What kind of do you want your legacy to be? What do you want them to say you accomplished during this time? Yeah, I would like to. To me, it's not about where I've coached or anything like that. It's not about the, the logo on the shirt. Um, for me, I just, I want to be known for doing all that I could to help my players stay healthy and perform at the highest level of sport that was capable of that person. I want to be known for not making excuses or shying away from achieving a a gold standard of performance. So if I know that I can deliver something and it's going to be a lot of work, but I know if I'm willing to do a lot of work to make that delivery happen, I'm going to choose to do that so that we can always achieve the gold standard of performance when we're diving down the rabbit hole and finding best practices. I want to be recognized and known for somebody that always did that, didn't shy away from going the extra mile for these players. And I, I want to be known as somebody that was there for my players as people. You know, I was trying to help them be the very best version of themselves and, Certainly you want to see them succeed in all ways, shapes and form on the field. But I want, I want guys just like some of these other older coaches in the industry where they say, you know, ask me in 20 years what my impact on that athlete was, are they still calling me? Are they still reaching out to me? Like that's, I want to be known for, for being somebody like that, where, you know, what Joe DeFranco did for me in high school and the way that he impacted me and, and my life and gave me my first job and all these things like that's, that's the kind of, approach I'm, I'm looking at with all of this. I want to be remembered as somebody that was always thinking of the players as people, not just as pawns in this weird tactical scheme. Yeah. Yeah. Setting them up for the next 40 years, not the four years that you have them for. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the last question of the podcast, uh, you, you're kind of billboard message for somebody that's in that Valley. Maybe they're at where you were at, where you kind of had that look at yourself moments of the, the ego's taken over, this part's taken over. What's kind of your message for somebody in a similar spot for that? Yeah, I would say this ties in to my overall philosophy of life and philosophy of coaching, which is just commit yourself to the truth and commit yourself to reality at all costs. You know, don't get caught up in fluff. Don't get caught up in things you can't control. You know, control what you can control. Just see problems as they unfold right in front of you and just be honest with yourself. Be honest with all those around you. And I think if you can do those things, then many opportunities will find their way into your life. And it's just... It comes back to what I talked about before. I think be authentic as, as best you can. Don't try to fake it till you make it. Just be authentic. And all the experiences that you achieve at that point are going to be 
so much more gratifying and so much more valid and real overall. So I guess that would be my billboard message. Just be yourself, commit yourself to truth and commit yourself to reality. Boom. Coach, we did it. We finished the podcast. (laughs) We got it all put together. This was awesome. Thank you for being on. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Boom. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.